Hi guys, welcome back to another episode of Healthy Conversations with Omi Naidu, the show where we connect the experts directly to you. In this episode, I'm joined by Dr. K. Sriram, who's a general surgeon and critical care specialist in Chicago. He graduated from Madras Medical College and has decades of experience. He is also a tele-intensivist with Minneapolis Veterans Affairs Healthcare System, as well as an avid researcher having 45 publications. Dr. Sriram is both a speaker for local and international critical care nutrition congresses and was also part of the expert research team that published the consensus paper in JPEN titled Parental Provision of Micronutrients to Adults, an Expert Consensus Paper. Other co-authors included Professor Rene Blau and Prof. Mederberger. I hope you enjoyed this episode and please don't forget to like, share and subscribe. A special thanks goes out to the guys from Baxter for supporting this episode. It's a warm welcome to Dr. Sriram and thank you for being on the show. Perfect. So uh, we've reached out to you from the podcast division to discuss quite an interesting topic in terms of parental nutrition but more specifically, uh, the provision of micronutrients. I know that you are one of the, the authors on the lovely paper that was published in the Aspen Journal, but could you maybe just give us a background on what brought you to this area of interest in terms of micronutrients in critical illness or in parental nutrition? Yeah, so during my observation of uh, nutrition support or nutrition therapy, which is uh, a better term in many countries, in the US and other Asian countries mainly, we have noticed that there is a lot of emphasis only on the macronutrients, how many calories to give, how much of protein to give, which is more important. Calories are less important, especially in the critically ill patient, uh, patient right now. In other words, the exact calories uh, is not that crucial. A range is okay. But then micronutrients are very often forgotten. And uh, when you have a patient who is on enteral feeding um, and gets at least 1500 cc's of an optimal scientific formula, then you will find that uh, micronutrient deficiencies really don't occur uh, as often as you might think. But when parental nutrition is given, very often the trace elements are not added. This is very common in Asian countries, maybe because of the availability or because of the lack of sensitivity. In other words, the ratio of TPN formulation and micronutrients should be one-to-one, -one, but that doesn't happen all the time. Another situation is that when the term micronutrients is used, uh, people only think about multivitamins and not multiple trace elements. So when you say micronutrients are important, it means both vitamins and trace elements. I always uh, use this analogy. You cannot run a car with petrol alone. You need brake fluid. You need other kinds of oils in the car, other liquids to make the car run better. Similarly, there is no point giving macronutrients alone, the carbohydrates, fats, or, and proteins, unless you have the catalysts that move the enzymes or optimal metabolism of the macronutrients you get. So without, uh, my, uh, when, when optimal micronutrients are not administered 
you will notice that there can be catastrophical uh, uh, results, leading sometimes even to the death of the patient. But it's, it's very rarely in the physician's mind linked with a micronutrient deficiency that caused the death of the patient. At other times, it may be poor wound healing, infections, it may be a, or cardiac failure from time and deficiency, selenium deficiency. Therefore, we thought we should write a paper to sensitize the need of the world community. And to have a buy-in, Omi, we made sure we had a lot of people from all over the world. So Dr. René Berger, Dr. Blau, and uh, no, Dr. Dr. Berger was the senior senior author, Dr. Metzberger was the senior author on this paper, and uh, Dr. Blau, uh, from your own part of the world, and I, we were some of the lead authors. We had people from various uh, parts of the world. Therefore, we don't want anybody to say, oh, this is a paper from Europe, or this is a paper from North America, because nutrition support is the same, whatever is the way, the color of your skin, or whatever accent with which you speak English, uh, nutrition support is the same. There's no point saying that's a European guideline or American guideline. So we made sure we had a group of people who are all authors on the paper so that we can have a scientific committee that says, please guys, think about micronutrients. Okay, so I think you've already answered my first question, which was amazing, which was gonna be, you know, why micronutrients are important, but I think you've, you've answered that, you know, very nicely for us and we appreciate that. If we look at, you know, other than during parental nutrition, do patients need intravenous micronutrient supplementation? Okay, that's a very good question. When a patient is on enteral feeding, let's just separate the two, which is 90% of the of nutrition support we give in hospitals, even in many US hospitals, is enteral feeding, early enteral feeding, not waiting for bowel sounds, not waiting for fasciculators, the, the enhanced recovery after surgery protocol, 90% is enteral feeding. Therefore, complications from surgery and other critical illnesses becomes less, and therefore the need for parental nutrition because of gut failure is decreased. So when you, uh, when you give 1,500 cc of an enteral formula, you have already reached the goal, and many of the scientific formulas the contain sufficient micronutrients, both multivitamins and trace elements, to meet the daily requirement of the patient. Okay. Now, there, uh, when, where you have to be very careful when I say uh, scientific formulas. There are hundreds of bogus nutrition products sold all over the world, uh, including Western countries. We are not talking about the bogus nutrition products. We're talking about a true scientific formula. So that is very important. But if you give 1500 cc's of most of these formulas, you will find that the, the, the enteral feeding for that day will provide the micronutrients you need for that patient. Now, the problem that arises in many Asian countries, which I've noticed, and South American countries, is because of the feeling that scientific formulas are more expensive. And kitchen prepared blenderized diets are cheaper. Many hospitals actually use kitchen prepared diets. The practice 
that has been abandoned years and years ago for various reasons, which we can discuss a little bit further in our discussion. But especially in the critically ill patients, uh, there is absolutely no indication. In fact, I would sometimes even venture to say it's very bad medical practice to use kitchen prepared diets. When you look at all the complications, when you look at the, the time taken to prepare it in the wastage, many studies have actually shown that kitchen prepared diets are more expensive than the scientific formulas. So these are two things we have to keep in mind that the scientific formulas must be used, the volume must be at least about 1500 cc's because they have the micronutrients in a bioavailable form. When you use the kitchen prepared diets, the, the food scientists will say that so much of this feeding contains so much of iron or selenium or zinc or vitamins, but we don't even know whether it is in a bioavailable form. So now, recently, the European Society has actually come up with a statement, and there's another very nice paper by Dr. Berger that came out in January of 2022, indicating that even if we give uh, entropy to a patient, and if we, it takes two or three days to reach the goal, it's almost impossible to reach the goal immediately in a critically ill patient. Therefore, they have recommended, very interesting, that you should give patients extra time in for at least the first three days of ICU care. And we have started doing that. We've been doing it earlier, but now that the Europeans, especially when a person of Dr. Berger's caliber says it should be done, we feel that we should be doing it. You see, either entry where possible, if not parenteral. And the reason is, timely deficiency is not unknown in critically ill patients. Uh, it, uh, whenever you have a patient with unexplained metalactic acidosis, we think about time deficiency. I never make a diagnosis of delirium in the ICU unless the patient has got enough time. Of course, it is true that it is more common in alcoholics. That's true, but not necessarily so, uh, especially when you're giving a high carbohydrate diet. And so it is kind of important for us to really understand that uh, that, that recommendation of giving micronutrients for the first uh, uh, three days of ICU, you know, to give time in. If you haven't reached a goal of ventral feeding for let's say three, four, five days, then you may have to give supplemental parenteral time, uh, not time, uh, supplemental parenteral micronutrients, both trace elements and multivitamins. Okay. okay. So okay. Uh, that is the recommendation. Invariably, because of the cost involved and because of various other um, problems in the formulation, uh, I think giving entrally is fine. There are various vitamin preparations available, and there are various uh, various uh, uh, trace element preparations available in the market for oral use. They can be powdered and they can be given beautifully through a nasal enteral or nasogastric or even oral. Just because a patient is a parental nutrition does not mean that they cannot tolerate some amount of oral. The TPN would have been started because you haven't reached the goal orally or anything. So at least in nutrition support, that component of nutrition therapy. The micronutrient component in many patients can be given using the GI. Okay, thanks for that explanation. And could you maybe just talk us through the, you know, the conditions that 
maybe you would need intravenous micronutrient administration, even though the patient might not be on parental nutrition. So the ones that come to mind are, you know, your renal replacement therapy patients, those with those high output fistulas, burns, gut surgery. Could you give us some ideas as to how the supplementation should be or what should we be looking out for? So as far as possible, we have to use the GI tract as far as possible. However, if there is a duodenal fistula, for example, not, uh, not a fistula from the bile duct but, or the liver, but from the duodenum, then there is a huge amount of stuff coming out and whatever you take orally is going to come out of the leakage from the duodenum. So, so wherever possible, you have to use, where, uh, you have to use uh, the gut. If it's a distal fistula or if it is a colonic fistula, it doesn't matter at all because it has, you'll be able to uh, be sure that the micronutrients are absorbed in the GI tract. Remembering that even the stomach can absorb some micronutrients. Okay. When that is not possible, then parental nutrition is needed. There are some conditions where you may need more. Uh, micronutrients. Now, you may remember the other paper which was published in SPEN, Clinical Nutrition, uh, where I was a co-author and she was uh, the main author, Dr. Guri Vada, that was published uh, late last year, where we showed that there is absolutely no evidence to give more micronutrients what, than what the daily allowance is, uh, uh, is needed. There's no indication at all to give anything more, especially during the COVID crisis, you know how much of misinformation has been spread among the public and among the medical personnel. So, uh, so uh, the, you don't, in the majority of conditions, you do not need to give more than what is recommended daily, either entirely or But in answer to your question, there are indeed certain conditions where you need to give extra micronutrients, either entirely or parenterally. In those situations, invariably it will be parenterally. So what are they? Burns is one typical condition. Most of the burn surgeons use extra zinc and vitamin C. And it is given intravenously too because there's a lot of feeding intolerance. Even they, as far as possible, you try to give it in. But if you're not able to reach the goal, uh, then you might want to give it especially zinc, because zinc is absorbed mainly the duodenum and the proximal digital. Another condition where you would give uh, more will be renal replacement therapy too. But in renal replacement therapy, the problem is how long has this continued? In other words, just because a patient was started on renal re replacement therapy, you don't immediately have to give supplemental therapy. Uh, or you don't need to give supplemental micronutrients to the patient. We're not talking about, uh, about parental nutrition. We're talking only about supplemental micronutrients, either vitamins or trace elements. They need not be given. But if it is a long-term condition, then you have to first document the fact that micronutrients are deficient. Now, then runs a big problem. That is why many nephrologists and folks involved will empirically do it. What is the problem? Serum levels are not very reliable for most micronutrients. Especially, we'll take into account for, uh, for trace elements. 
Trace elements work intracellular. And what we measure is in the serum. To make matters worse, especially in very sick people who are the ones who need mechanical support, there is a sequestration of micronutrients into the reticuloendothelial system. Like the iron levels go down in stress. It is a phylogenetic response even in animals because too much iron in the bloodstream will actually make gram-negative infections worse. And therefore, the body has learned to adapt over the centuries of adaptation, even in animals, to sequester. Zinc levels go down in stress too. So what's the point of checking a zinc level in a patient who's really not deficient and then saying it is low and giving them extra zinc? So that becomes an absolutely a very, very big problem of multiple trace elements, not to mention that you have to collect it in a right sample, not all the labs do it. And then the results come back two weeks later after sending it to a reference lab when the patient is no longer, may no longer need, is out of the woods or maybe has not even survived those two weeks. Okay? So we have a problem about micronutrient levels, but that is the best we have available, so we do it. Where it is indicated, long-term. Now we come to vitamins. Vitamins are also a problem. You take vitamin E, there are so many isoforms of vitamin E. If you want to check for vitamin A levels, is it, are we going to check what form of vitamin A, the beta carotene, or what actually are we going to check? Vitamin C, yes, you can get. Thiamine levels, very difficult to get because it is not the serum thiamine. You've got to get the thiamine in the RBCs, intracellular uh, thiamine levels. It's not easy to get at all. Vitamin D is a huge problem. There's absolutely no evidence that you even need to check vitamin D levels in critically ill patients. Uh, uh, we have shown in some publications that vitamin D levels go down during the resuscitation of critically ill patients. So many of the vitamin D studies are absolutely flawed in my opinion and in the opinion of many other people. Uh, publications that are often quoted where they have checked the vitamin D level three days after the patient was admitted to the ICU, and the level already got diluted. So if you look at the meta-analysis, there is no reason to check vitamin D levels in a critically ill patient. It is okay in the community, there may be other reasons for it. We're talking about very, very sick people who are the kind of patients that you and I deal with. We're not talking about vitamin D levels in the community where there are certain uh, conditions where you have to check it and you have to check levels. That is absolutely true. But we're talking about hospitalized patients. There's, there's no need to check it. Right? Okay? Unless there is some other clinical suspicion that the patient came in with the vitamin D, uh, with the vitamin D deficiency. Therefore, I would say the short answer to your question is, yes, there are conditions. True, we have to always rely on serum levels, but the serum levels are not very reliable. And therefore, it is okay for experienced physicians and dietitians to give empiric extra multivitamins and trace elements, knowing the pathophysiology. For example, in renal failure, you would not, you may not want to give uh, too much of vitamin A because vitamin A toxicity can occur. Similarly, vitamin D, what form of vitamin D do we give? Because the kidney does not really help in the hydroxylation to the 125 form, you see? So we have a little bit of difficulty in understanding those specific conditions. Those are the conditions in which you need to have proof that 
a deficiency does occur, and those are the patients in whom you need intravenous uh, micronutrients, both vitamins and vitamins. Okay, thank you for that. And it, it, it comes across as this topic is, is quite a complex one where you know, there isn't reliable markers to, to identify a deficiency. There isn't, uh, besides the markers not being there, the, if they are, you know, the timeline to get the results are, are quite, you know, as you said, obscure, where maybe even the patient might have demise by the time you get that result and does it really change your treatment. But I like that you say that, you know, we should anticipate, you know, as opposed to trying to identify something that we, we might be difficult to be finding, we should anticipate it based on the clinical condition of that patient and supplement accordingly. Yeah, but, but everyone on nutrition support should get at least what is daily recommended. Okay, okay. There's okay. no okay. anything extra empirically, but everyone, the micronutrient component should be the same. Now there, I have to add something that's very interesting. So I have gone to some hospitals and I'm told, oh, oh the patient is getting, uh, uh, the, the patient is getting uh, vitamins and trace elements. Okay, so I, uh, some, some years ago, I was making rounds and a young person only had congestive heart failure for reasons that were not clear at all, you know. Patient was getting time in and we knew that zinc, uh, we knew that uh, selenium deficiency can cause uh, cardiomyopathy. So I asked, and this was presented as an abstract in one of the European countries, never published as a paper. No. So I asked the pharmacy, what kind of micronutrients, what kind of trace elements are you using? And he brought the vial. It was a multiple trace element four, zinc, copper, chromium, and manganese without selenium. So even the pharmacy have forgotten to add selenium. The patient had typical selenium deficiency. Would you believe that? And wow. then we get the intravenous selenium and lo and behold, the congestive heart failure disappeared. We have chest x-rays and, uh, and echocardiograms to prove it. Now, more common among the vitamins, uh, there have been conditions where we suddenly find somebody whose, uh, whose INR is elevated, the international normalized ratio or the prothrombin time is elevated. Uh, why that can occur? Because of vitamin K deficiency. And the dietitian said, no, no, we are adding, we are giving the patient B-complex. Just B-complex. You see, it is not multivitamin. It is, doesn't have vitamin C. It doesn't have various other vitamins. When you make sure that it is a multivitamin, it has to be a true multivitamin. And quite often, folic acid is not present with it. Vitamin K is not present. It is only about 10 years ago that the US FDA insisted that all parenteral vitamin products should contain a minimum amount of vitamin K. Earlier, it wasn't even added. So now, what you'll find is, you'll find a patient going to surgery or uh, some other procedure with, uh, uh, if they check coagulation, coagulation is normal. The patient gets a lot of fluid and then comes back and starts bleeding. And then we find uh, it is because of vitamin K deficiency. And people scratch their heads wondering, how did this patient develop a vitamin K deficiency? The reason is there is no storage form of vitamin K in the body. It is either produced by the gut bacteria or by the food we take. If both are absent, the patient gets vitamin K deficiency. And the INR or the prothrombin time has a level of sensitivity. It doesn't pick up a deficiency, a subclinical deficiency. It doesn't pick up. The patient goes to surgery, comes back with a lot of fluid, starts bleeding, and then goes on to die. 
Now, a smart dietitian would tell the surgeon without being afraid of anything, because that is what they would do for their own family or for themselves. Madam, sir, the patient has not eaten for four or five days and can be vitamin K deficient, you know? And therefore, please give 20 milligrams of vitamin K two or three days before you take the patient for an elective surgery. Then the surgeon would tell the dietitian, well, who are you to tell me? Then I, I urge dietitians to say this to surgeons. I'm a surgeon myself. Uh, doctor, I know what I'm trying to tell you. You know, this is important for the patient's safety. If that doesn't work, Omi, on a humorous side, I would tell the patient, I'd ask the dietitian to tell the patient, discharge against medical advice and go to another hospital and another surgeon. <laughs> because can you, can you imagine, Omi, something, a dietitian now picks up vitamin K deficiency, insists on vitamin K for elective procedure, delays it by three days, a difference between life and death. Absolutely. Just because of a simple thing that the intervention may not cost you so much, maybe a couple of dollars. That's a classic example. I can give you several more, but here is a classic example. Thank you for sharing that, Dr. Sriram. If I could take a step back, we're going to rewind completely now. And can you, for our listeners, let's, let's go through it in a, in a nice, simplistic, easy-to-understand manner. The difference between supplementation, uh, repletion and to complement. You know, very often we're saying we're supplementing with micronutrients, but are we actually supplementing or are we just replacing? Could you just help us understand the terminology? Uh, uh, the word replacement is easy. If you think there are losses more than what is being, uh, what is being lost in the body, then you replace it. You empirically can replace it. Classic examples will be zinc in bile, in bile. Similarly, uh, 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 when you have a bilious leak that can occur from bile duct surgery or for whatever reason, the bile has a huge amount of zinc because of the enterohepatic circulation. And so we have, uh, you know, we have actually given extra zinc. There have been uh, situations where a patient uh, with a bile leak has a skin rash. And the dermatologist comes and says, well, you know, this is a non-specific dermatitis, gives some steroid ointment and paroxysts and goes away. And the dietitian says, oh, no, that is zinc deficiency. And indeed, the truth is you give intravenous zinc and the rash disappears. You see? Okay. So, yes. uh, so, uh, so, uh, so the, the, there is a specific condition. That is, there is repletion. You know that there is an extra loss and therefore you replete. Okay? Complementing the term complementing is that you haven't reached the goal of enteral feeding. And therefore, you complement. You, you kind of complement whatever so that you come to whatever is, is really needed. The word supplementation usually implies pharmacologic supplementation. That is, over and above what the patient needs, you give extra. During the COVID crisis, a lot of people got truckloads of, of uh, vitamin C, totally unnecessary, never been proven. Truckloads of zinc, intravenous as well as parenteral zinc, totally useless, you know? And uh, 
because nobody, everyone was scared about it. You just hope patients would come and demand it because a lot of misinformation. And so that is the term supplementation. Okay. So, so I would, to simplify matters, I would tell our audience, uh, think of supplementation as a pharmacologic supplementation in pharmacologic doses over and above the daily Okay, so if I understand you correctly, what the research and what the experts like you are advocating is rather for us in those patients on parental nutrition to think of repleting the, uh, you know, the, the losses or giving doses that are more within the RDAs rather than looking for supranatural doses that have limited benefits or limited evidence showing their benefit. Correct, absolutely. And, and, and that was another paper we published by Gudibada in uh, Clinical Nutrition, ESPEN, ESPEN Clinical Nutrition, uh, where this was a, uh, this was a multi, it was a very beautifully done paper, multi-anal, multi, uh, 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 multiple Bayesian analysis, where you have multiple treatment modalities. When, see, you very, when you have studies, where they give a cocktail of micronutrients, it is very difficult to sift through the benefit or lack of benefit of each micronutrient. That was exactly what this paper did. And I must confess, I'm not a statistician and I had nothing to do with the statistical analysis of this paper. It's a G-U-D-I-V-A-D-A, Kudivada, K is the initial, uh, published sometimes last year in clinical nutrition, spent clinical nutrition. So that clearly showed for there's no benefit in any of these conditions at all. See? So that I think will answer your specific question. We don't need to break our heads about micronutrients. Give whatever the patient, whatever is recommended. Anytime you use parental nutrition, micronutrients should be added on the first day. It is part and parcel of the thing. Now, Omi, so this is something very interesting. How do you give the micronutrients, the trace elements? Let's talk of trace elements. You can actually, it depends upon your hospital. You can actually give it uh, by a separate IV, slow infusion, not just bolus. You can give it slowly, okay? Uh, sometimes when you give selenium too rapidly, patients will complain of, uh, of a garlic breath in the mouth, you know? Uh, and it may, we don't know about safety features. So you give it very, very slowly. Um, in enteral, of course, there are so many stuff, so many tablets available in the market. You can crush it nicely and you can give it to a feeding tube or make the patient a tablet. Uh, tablets can be uh, crushed or taken whole or removed. Okay, no, perfect. Thanks for that. And uh, if you could just touch on for us, then you said not to give these supranormal doses. And this will even include those conditions like burns that we spoke about. You know, we no. just. Those are specific conditions as to clarify again. For the average patient, there is no need. When you want to do supranormal doses, there are specific conditions like burns you have to. Similarly, renal replacement is a loss. Similarly, bile leaks is a loss. Chile leaks. If you have worked in a hospital where they have do a lot of head and neck surgery or thoracic surgery, the, the, the lymphatic system can be damaged. And you can have lots of chile coming out, as you know. There are, it's a very complex problem for dietitians to handle. So chyle leaks are another thing. And that, again, for you and some of our, our, our viewers, some of our listeners, 
it is a fantastic study project, a research project, to check the trace element loss in kite. We don't know the right answer. You see, we don't know the right answer. Of course, somebody who has a chyle leak, you're not going to give too much orally. We don't know much about how much of the orally absorbed stuff comes out of the chyle. Uh, it's a difficult study, but it is a fantastic study. There are papers on the amount of bile, uh, amount of selenium zinc in the bile. There's a paucity of studies on the micronutrient losses in chyle. <clears throat> As I said earlier, not cost effective to check those things. So you just may give extra. But uh, what uh, Dr. Berger, the world, in my opinion, the world's expert on all this also says is, well, when you really think that the patient may need more, we don't recommend giving more than two or three times the daily requirement. You see, not giving 100 milligrams of zinc when the daily requirement is to not giving, uh, you know, not giving huge, huge doses of vitamin D, for example, 60,000 units. Okay? And vitamin C, you know, we need just a little bit of vitamin C every day. Then people are giving five grams of vitamin C. Yes, yes I think especially in the COVID times, we've had a a whole cocktail of, of these micronutrients that were at quite excessive doses as people were, were quite desperate to find some sort of intervention to assist with that oxidative stress. But there's no, see, it is, it is of course, as I mentioned earlier, it is true that levels can be shown to be down. But no one has ever shown that giving supplemented has does anything to do with mobility. See, yes. That is what we have to keep in mind. That did my intervention change the outcome on a patient? Yeah, so to have a petri dish experiment and say that if you add zinc, the viral load is suppressed, doesn't mean anything at all in the human being. Animal experiments don't mean anything. Urine models, bovine models, cats, dogs, those don't mean anything. It is a human. Did my intervention do anything? And of course, nowadays they talk about cost effectiveness also. Is the cost effectiveness of my intervention in the community worth doing? And of course, the answer is clearly no, as shown in the meta-analysis, which I mentioned earlier, and various other studies. Yeah, no, I fully agree with you there, Dr. Sriram. And could we end off by asking your opinion on who is responsible for prescribing intravenous micronutrients? Is it the it is intensivist? Is it the dietitian? Is it the nurses to identify the possible patient? Who in your experience? Yeah, I would leave the nurses out of this for the moment. The responsibility is the physician. Ultimately, the buck stops with the treating physician. But the problem is that all physicians are not experienced in nutrition therapy, let alone micronutrients. Many physicians, especially the non-intensive care, non-GI, the non-burn specialists, they mean well, they are experts, good technicians, but you cannot expect a physician to know about everything in their specialty. It is impossible. That is why you need to depend upon dietitians to help nutritionists or dietitians. So the final responsibility is the physician. The second person who's responsible will be the pharmacist. 
Now, the problem with the pharmacy component is that they're not very often involved with enteral feeding. Am I right, Tommy? Yes, yes. Okay. Secondly, the pharmacist may not be involved with parental nutrition also because a lot of parental nutrition is now the multiple chamber bags, which may not even need a pharmacist. Yes. And therefore, now the buck stops with the dietitian. The dietitian will have to be very firmly involved in, uh, in this thing and should emphasize that this has to be given and don't let any uh, physician tell you, we'll wait for three or four days and then add the micronutrients, not at all so. The dietitian should be able to quote all these papers that you have in your position and which I'm sure you'll be sharing with your viewers and listeners also or available online to say, no ma'am, no sir, it is an integral component and it has to be done. It has to be added on day one of parental nutrition. And uh, it has taken several days to reach the goal of enteral feeding. Therefore, we should give the, you know, we should give the, uh, the, uh, the micronutrients enterally if possible, but there is a lot of GI intolerance and therefore we're not going to give enterally. Therefore, we have to give parental and uh, now the, uh, the sensitivity the, uh, the, or the lack of sensitivity to dietitians has been bothering me quite a bit for many years. And uh, uh, what has happened is recently, uh, I'll send you that uh, paper too, a news item came out about telehealth and how important telecritical care is and how a lot of work by the by the uh, doctors, like I do a lot of teleclinical care work, and there's a lot of uh, uh, work done by a uh, lot of help done by pharmacists can be done by uh, can be done remotely. Now, tele, I see the role of nutrition was completely neglected in that, completely neglected. Worse still, about four about four months ago, a paper came out in Critical Care Medicine. A very, uh, uh, a very prestigious journal of the Society for Critical Care Medicine in the US that lists the importance of multidisciplinary team approach to the critical inpatient. The dietitian's role is mentioned here and there, but not even emphasized. So I wrote a rebuttal to that, along with the previous president of the American Society, Dr. Gail Treshi, and that is going to be published, today is the 14th, it's going to be published in two days' time which I'll share with you, where we have said this is wrong for not involving dietitians. So I would say that dietitians have to fight that battle, just as ostomy therapists, just as a pump technician, a perfusionist, or somebody leading, uh, dealing with dialysis machines are giving more importance. The dietitians have to fight for their rights more and more. And to uh, and be bold and part of the training that I do in various parts of the world is actually team building, confidence building, and uh, you know not being afraid of saying this is my specialty. I know what I'm doing. This should be done. And specific to your uh, your podcast, I know that trace elements are needed, and these are the publications you should do it. Perfect. Thanks for that, Dr. Shriram. I think you. You touched on something, you know, very important that essentially we are also advocates for the patient and, you know, it's our role as, as a nutritional professional to, to really advocate for good sound nutrition. 
And, you know, just as I think the, the take home for us from this is obviously from day one to, to be thinking of micronutrients, obviously not those excessive doses, but uh, repeating, but also to, to ensure that we are actually monitoring these patients in some way and that what we're doing as an in intervention has an effect on the outcome, hopefully. So I think, I think thank you so much for your time and thanks for, for delving into this topic. I know it's quite a complex one, you know, from our listeners, I'm sure they'll, they'll agree that, you know, checking serum levels and intracellular levels and that not correlating and, you know, there's a bit of gray areas with this, but I think as one listens to experts like yourself, we can become more confident as to which diseases require more of certain micronutrients, as well as which critically ill patients we need to supplement along the way. Yeah, absolutely. You put it in a nutshell. Absolutely. Okay. Thank you so much for your time, Dr. Sriram. And we'll, we'll definitely be in touch.